The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today is an expert and author in the area of sustainability and corporate financial growth in a swift and severe world. Bruce Piasecki talks on his upcoming roundtable event in Washington, D.C. with industry leaders, succeeding in our carbon and capital-constrained world. My guest today returns to In Discussion as a profound expert, commentator and author in the area of sustainability and corporate financial growth in our changing society. Ahead of his upcoming Washington, D.C. roundtable event with industry leaders from around the world, he discusses the issues of global reorganization and innovation in succeeding in our carbon and capital-constrained world. Bruce Piasecki, welcome to you. David, it's good to be talking with you and your listening audience again. Well, thank you. Uh, Bruce, uh, ahead of this uh, event in Washington uh, next week, um, can we start off here with an introduction to the premise, uh, background, and uh, your uh, objectives with this particular um, particular event? Sure. I'm returning to the National Press Club next Tuesday and Wednesday to address a question that we think is very much on the minds of the Obama administration and people around America and the world. And that is, if we now have proof that there's serious capital constraints in the world, you know, that we're in a two-speed world where the rising Asian markets are doing well, but the rest of the world is growing 2%, and we now know after Copenhagen that it's also a carbon-constrained world, my central theme is how to succeed in this carbon and capital-constrained world. Now, this is a balance, a very fine balance between uh, meeting all the sustainable uh, requirements that are, are being pressed upon us by um, scientists, um, uh, experts in their field, uh, versus profitability and uh, continued economic growth in industry. Correct. You know, in my new book, The Surprising Solution, I tried to think of the Turner thesis of the endless western frontier and realize that the world is one globe and that we've reached that western expansionism and its limit. So I wrote a book trying to think about the S frontier where our lives have become more severe and more swift because of globalization. Now, in our notes together um, prior to the program, I was profoundly moved by um, your words around the competitive frugality. Um, this is suggesting clearly that we have to, as individuals and as industry, and I think that you you remember from my notes that I, I referenced that by saying that industry is people and people are industry, um, that we have to change our lifestyles. We have to accept uh, more um, basic 
um, uh, basic aspects to our life. We, we can't ex- have the expectations of what we've seen over the last uh, couple of decades. The way I think about it is last century, the 20th century, and the one before it were very much centuries about the superabundance of resources and about the vast appeal of technology and innovation. Um, but as we bring six billion plus people into this new 21st century, what is significant about the concept of competitive frugality, it, uh, it allows our human nature to be competitive, but we begin to compete on price, quality, and social needs. So in a way, the world has come full circle back to some of the fundamental enlightenment ideas of Ben Franklin, where we have to compete again on frugality. So the way I see it, David, it is a question, as you said, of balance and the profound uh, notion of responding to changes in society. That, um, as you indicated uh, in your terminology, when you use the word restraint, um, how can restraint be used uh, uh, it, it, for the common good uh, collaboratively um, uh, by everybody, uh, whether it's people, leaders of industry, uh, politicians, uh, government leaders, how can we all come together to, to make that restraint a common goal and a terminology that we all understand well? Great question. Uh, let me answer it first by a story, and, and then, you know, even quickly before the story, about the fact that political leaders like Churchill's blood, sweat, and tears speech, there have been mer- many instances in the Anglo tradition of from uh, Abe Lincoln at the Civil War to Churchill, you know, fighting the edge of the Nazi sword um, and tanks and, and, and bombers in his blood, sweat, and tear speech. So frugality and restraint are sisters, and they're very attractive sisters, well-dressed in history in this new century. So let me talk a story about these sisters and do they have a place in particular in America's table, which is such a vast table of, of, of abundance. So if you think of sisters sitting down at a dinner table and one is called restraint and the other is called frugality, they're very, they look alike. Uh, there are some subtle differences. So let me try and in this story of Nathaniel Hawthorne quickly and, and without pretense talk about what's needed. So it's a story called Earth's Holocaust. It's not as well known as the Scarlet Letter or his dozens of other Puritan stories. And it's a story where the perfectionism of his century gets a little carried away and people are creating a bonfire where they're burning all human vices. So they're taking um, elements of uh, alcoholism and they're throwing the bottles on the fire. They're taking tobacco, and they're throwing it on the fire. They're taking um, the sins of, of, of other uh, consumer vices, and they're throwing it on. And Hawthorne, who was such a master writer, compels the reader to look at the improbability that the solution can be in destruction. 
And so at the end, there's a man who comes up to the narrator and the protagonist and is just laughing with that kind of sinister laugh you see in great books like The Scarlet Letter. And he says, I don't think you're going to be able to get this bonfire under control until you burn the human heart. What I, what I think about these sisters, David, is that I, I have no pretense or I have no ambition or I don't think it's even possible to regulate changes in the human heart. Um, I don't think it's the role of government to define the dress of the sister of restraint or the sister of um, frugality. I think what we have to do is liberate through education and through very articulate writing the storyline of frugality and restraint. So we've done it in times of war. My mom was a World War II frugal person. We've done it in terms of personal restraint where some superstars, like Sting, have not self-imploded, right? They've developed a kind of musical restraint that make them better citizens of the world. So I think we know what the sisters of restraint and frugality feel like when they enter our own home. We have to now find ways to communicate that so that they could enter the larger society of governments, nation states, and corporations. How does that, how does that profound statement qualify and convert into the realities that we have today, in, into the financial systems, into the social uh, problems that we face? How, In at how... least three ways, competitive frugality is not an academic concept. The first way is the people who are not busted by the severity of the last dip in the market are people who have understood the dangers of debt. They didn't overbuy homes that were supersized. Uh, they did not extend their lifestyle um, beyond debt. Um, so it's not that they didn't have credit cards, and it's not that they didn't have debt. It's just they didn't have the superstar debt of so many people. And I think Michael Jackson represents, in my mind, in my writing of my new book, the stress of easy credit. So I think the first feature of competitive frugality is to come to understand in your life how to resist the temptation of easy debt, the excess of easy debt. I remember meeting the billionaire George Mitchell in Texas, who had been a Texas wildcatter before I interviewed him, and he was so different than his sons, who were exploiting largesse. He was a frugal man. Uh, so that's the first principle of competitive frugality is, is to learn about the logic of debt and to resist the temptations of debt almost like a World War II Rosie the Riveter. Uh, if you don't want me to go on in the other two features, I certainly won't because I think many lives are suffering from not understanding debt and from the underemployed to many professionals I see around the world. We need to look at the financial systems, uh, surely. Um, and I, I think that there's a lot of banter and, and a lot of people uh, uh, pointing uh, five fingers and fall back at themselves 
frankly. Um, but what is the responsibility here now of Wall Street, of the, of the financial um, uh, mansion, I suppose? I'm using your, your terminology. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do they have to do now to reverse um, a very broken system to ensure that uh, we don't get back into return back to this situation? Yeah, I've always believed in the power of writing and in the compelling nature of concepts. And I think every Wall Street person that I meet, I'm trying to talk to them now about frugality. And I'm also trying to talk to them that the word competitive frugality is not an oxymoron. That they are very competitive people and they will have to, in this new swift world, learn how to reduce their bonuses. The best competitive people learn how not to pursue excess because they can see the game, they can see the scene. I know that in London, um, they have now for a year an experimental reduction in bonuses. Um, I think that um, the global market was first conceived 200 years ago in London, and I think that's a good start. It's not yet quite evident in FTSE or in Cannery Wharf, where all the bankers are, as a given. It's it's a one-year test, and I think it's an important test. In America, the Obama administration is trying some severe interventions in that space, and one of the reasons I'm going back to Washington next week is to hear from the bankers and the investment people that come to my kind of talks. So I think this is the beginning. Sarbanes-Oxley, Section 404, was probably the real beginning when after uh, various corrupted financial reports uh, the US government passed section 404 which is a disclosure requirement for seven years my firm held private benchmarking workshops on what is proper disclosure of financial risk and I think that the Wall Street mansion is changing itself to allow more competitive frugality Let's look at the bigger picture, if if we may, and return back to the uh, huge environmental problems that we have. Um, we are obviously realizing now that, that the westernized uh, developed nations, such as the USA, are the, the main uh, problem in in the uh, emissions uh, that, that we have now. Um, and, of course, the, the third world nations are probably a lot greener than us. And uh, But, of course, they, they, they wish only to become uh, westernized and, uh, and increase their uh, economical might. Um, what do we have to do on a global scale here? You know, it seems to me that there are so many... Uh, challenges. It, it is not like the Great Depression. It's not like uh, 1946, 1947, uh, post-war. Not only do we have um, a, a very severe economic crisis here, but we do have the econ- the environmental problem. Now, what is it going to take as a solution here in the short term to uh, to overcome these problems on a global scale? Sure. Two things uh, at once. First, History shows us that there have been many environmental problems. Uh, the Romans in the Colosseum um, destroyed an ecosystem of large animals. Um, there was desert, 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 you know, deserts were created through environmental abuse throughout sub-Saharan Africa and early civilization. Um, so our environmental abuse 
is a cultural uh, thing that civilization has known through restraint. Now, there's mysteries in the past, for example, why the Anasazi Indians of North America left. Some people think it's water excess. Some people think it's failure of agriculture. They don't really know, but great civilizations have caused their own demise through environmental neglect. So that's the first thing. The second is there are things that are facts, like the facts of CO2, and then there are things that are higher facts, like the human heart. And I think that the way to address the higher facts of the human heart is to create a common global expectation that high emissions are no longer allowed in terms of per capita carbon dioxide emissions. So, for example, you know, you have in the U.S., you have in Australia, you have in Canada, you have in select wealthy states of uh, places like Saudi Arabia or the Emirates, you have an extremely excessive pattern of high consumption per capita. Witness the ice rinks in Saudi Arabia. You know, witness um, Abu Dhabi scenes where um, it, it actually makes America um, look frugal in, in, in contrast. So high emissions per capita have been elements of abuse throughout human civilization from the Romans to the Americans. So I think you got to keep that in perspective. I, I think that it is a sign of civilization decay when people spend time wheel-spinning in ideology. And so to be bold, I'm very upset with the Palin effect, where I, I prefer instead the Walmart effect to the Palin effect, because what's happening in the extreme... Republican fringe, uh, and the reason I want to go to Washington next next week is is that there are people who are simplifying the issues so severe that you can look at the human heart's need for health and say the government is trying to create, you know, warlike ways to eliminate your access to your doctor. Well, that's just a profound lie. And so I think there are times when the human heart has to repel against the kind of stupid things politics can say. So I believe, and I learned this from Jacques Cousteau, who used to go to Washington after each of his books or each of his big shows, that there's a cleansing effect. I remember Cousteau's son wrote an intro to one of my books. I got to meet him before he passed away. And Cousteau said one of those higher facts to me once. He said, there's no way to separate the peaceful atom from the warlike atom. I believe there's no way to separate the human heart's positive addiction to consumption unless you educate. This uh, suggests to me possibly that we have three clear categories. We're, we're talking about the human heart, the human condition, uh, the ego that, that, that runs with that, uh, the consumption factor that you're talking about. We then have the problem of uh, emissions, environmental concerns. And then the third category, we have uh, the need to find uh, a new paradigm here, a, a, a rebirth as it is, to ensure that we still have industry, still have employment, still have profitability. Absolutely. How, how can we take those three uh, issues uh, those three points and combine them into something where they work n not only in parallel, but they work together as one mandate. 
in all humility, I think all I can do is to talk about what my small firm tries to do with some larger firms. Um, and I think the reason I write books is for the first reason. You know, you talk about ego and the consumptive factor. When you're a writer, you're trying to bridge to readers. It's a one ego feeling the superego of history writing to another single ego. And I try and write in color. I try and tell my stories, which are stories of the benefits of restraint, the stories of meeting my sister's frugality and restraint, and how they've brought meaning into my life. So that's that's the first of the three you're talking about. The second of the problem of emissions, clearly law and social rules are mission critical there. You, I've always written in my books about the need to refine laws in order to make all of the animals in the zoo jump to the same music. So that's why we have the rules of 55 miles you know, uh, per hour in certain highways and 65 in other superhighways. That's why we have the constraint of 30 miles per hour in in neighborhoods uh, of and and even less in areas of children and and high density population. So society understands the rules of restraint. The Japanese example regarding carbon dioxide emissions is that you know they're the thirty second in terms of nations per capita emissions, and yet they're one of the most successful industrialized cultures in the world, the second largest economy. And to me, that's an example of how society can pass rules and address the problems of emission. There is a higher fact that you can never achieve zero, that there will always be emissions and waste. But what matters is the human pursuit of emission reduction. And that takes acute regulatory control. Would you agree? Absolutely. So, Um, for example... I'm I'm sorry. Well, and I was going to say, in achieving that, can we rely upon the strength of uh, political leaders, or or do we have to look at the private sector, the the industry now, to lead that? You know, one of the things that disturbs me about what I'll call the common media, or what I'll also call the common political discourse, is the thought that all regulation is severe and acute. Regulation as it's passed is a synthesis, you know, as an ex-lobbyist speaking about these issues, a synthesis of the best science and the best economic compromise at the moment. So I would like to make a lot of this concrete regarding the central issue of our century, carbon dioxide and carbon. Um, You know, the, the elements of climate change and the higher facts of how to respond to it. I'd like your listeners to begin thinking that a cap-and-trade system, which is what the Waxman-Markey bill wanted, is highly unlikely in a down economy. It, it may be the most probable way that economic theory would go, but it's not real politic. It's not going to happen. And many of my friends, both in Washington and outside in the corporate world and in small business feel certain that cap-and-trade will die. Now, what will emerge in its place? 
I believe, the principle of competitive frugality will. And how do you achieve that? I want to tell you two stories. Um, First, I believe the people of India already know competitive frugality. They've been able to liberate in their economy high-tech markets quite successfully and service revolution quite successfully. It's what Thomas Friedman called the flattening of the world, and the world is flat. And if you track what's on the mine and what they buy in the educated classics of, you know, papers in India that are larger than the New York Times, like the Hindu, there is a informed, educated theme of frugality from a culture that's tens of thousands of years old. Now, if you fast forward the contrast to America and, and to China, I, I think in those settings... Um, and in those cultures, a carbon tax is what's necessary. And I would like to talk to you, if you like, about why I will be one voice of many advocating that in the next six months as a way of getting out of. Now, is, is that carbon tax applied to industry? Yes. So the way to think of it is if you have an economy like ours that's only growing 2%, all right, the, the good news is that it's growing again, all right? And, and there's plenty of evidence of that. You have also economies like China that are growing beyond double figures, beyond 10%, which is unprecedented and probably history shows unsustainable. So, so somewhere between 2 and 10% is a sensible world, but unfortunately the way capitalist systems work, they boom and bust between 0% and 10%. And that's the fate of, of markets. But w- what is interesting to me about a carbon tax, and the latest version of it that came out on Monday of this week, is by the Republican from South Carolina, Graham, the presidential aspirant, Kerry, and also the uh, well-known middle uh, manager of great legislation, Lieberman of Connecticut. They have a carbon tax rule that I think is quite intelligent in that it intends to tax industry by segment. So it'll tax utilities, it'll tax oil and gasoline, it'll tax other high-emission industries. And what's wonderful is it's conceived... Now, people might not trust politics for this, but I do. It will recycle the money for positive social projects. So, for example, if you tax gasoline this money, this carbon tax under this law that's under uh, committee revision right now, which is gaining momentum hourly, it, it will recycle that money for transportation infrastructure. So it's the same kind of laws we wrote in the 1980s when I was very involved in congressional debates and in, in my books Beyond Dumping and America's Future. I talked about how when you tax a bad like hazardous waste land disposal, you then take that tax and recycle it towards R&D for hazardous waste treatment and reduction. We can do that with CO2. We just have to get past the ideological wheel spinning of current politics. And it will be done because when you have veterans that have been in Congress as long as Kerry and Lieberman, I trust that permanent face of government will be able to isolate the extreme of a Palin and will 
isolate the extreme of the Democratic Party and achieve what, as a lobbyist, we used to call the funnel of the probable. Well, I'm, <clears throat> I'm sure that um, th they have been looking at that dream probably since the, the days of Disraeli. Mm -hmm. um, may I uh, place this out in front of you for your reaction? Um, understanding the, the, the road that you're charting here, um, in, in order to lead to carbon reduction, we need to create and develop effective technology. Uh, we know that uh, in order to create business development, put people back into work, create uh, um, uh, the, the impetus again for small industry, um, that we have to fund that somehow. And, and I'm sure that that's got to be extremely uh, creative uh, to achieve that. Um, so how, how are we going to accomplish this? Given right now that our manufacturing base has been very depleted, our industry is very hard hit, um, and, I, and I think the carbon tax sounds like a, a, certainly a way forward. It is. And, and it you're, you're, you're talking about that uh, in terms of creating social projects. Now, with all that said, the, the social projects I'm interested in, what, how would you cite those social projects uh, shaping Two, two thoughts. Uh, the, the first is um, the best way for America to operate in this new century and for any nation to operate is to understand that it's a global market. And so the normal tax and tariff protections of nationalism are probably wrongheaded. So I, I would like to confront my peer, Thomas Friedman, who talks in his new book, The World is Hot, Flat, and Crowded. He talks in a simple-minded way about a green code for America. The, the world has to go global and green at the same time. That's the higher fact. It is true you need regulatory control, but it's got to be regulatory control at an international level, right? It has to be um, a way to fight through the dilemma that the poorer countries are now in some sense greener, like India and that we cannot penalize um, economic progress in any region when we look at the facts of poverty across the world. So I think that there is a mansion that needs to be built, just like the corporations have built their mansion, in which consistent standards are achieved across the globe. Now. The United Nations is moving into new buildings in New York City. I have a cousin who works there, and it's very fascinating to understand how the domain of the United Nations has increased in political stability since its inception. There's a lot of work that needs to do be done in terms of environmental stability and financial stability. That mansion will not be built overnight, but it needs to be done. There are some principles of it that I write about in The Surprising Solution. Let me ask this, uh, Bruce, if I may. Mm -hmm. um, that regulatory dynamic that we're talking about, that you cite as being led on an international scale, um, would you agree with me that the, the European Union uh, and the, the, the Brussels mansion, as it were, is clearly not working terribly well? Um, it, it's it's really being pushed back by the old notions of, of nationalism um, and various other things. 
But uh, that regulatory control has got to be, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure, has to be on an international scale. I'm with you. And, and so, for example, the Brussels mansion has has been pretty battered. And and if you look at the principles of the OECD, it's kind of more logical and more sensible than some of the actual mansion. So to shift to to the subject of the mansion of regulation, it's got to be consistent across the globe because if it isn't, then you have waste havens and you also have child labor abuses. So when Nike gets sued under what's called the nike Caskey rule and they settle, it's because they understood and so many people in manufacturing understood that there was child labor abuses. Um, when, when I was involved in the hazardous waste laws, you, you needed to make sure that East Germany and West Germany had similar tracking systems and similar standards of operating unless uh, otherwise you'd have waste havens. And I visited some of those salt mines in East Germany that had become waste havens until Brussels and the OECD corrected the standards across internationally. So you can't even have progress on CO2 unless you pursue this thing internationally. So what I believe is regulation is simply the floor of a corporate mansion, and regulation is simply the shiny floor of social norms. What society needs is creative innovation and a stairwell of ascent for individuals and nations to become more competitive and more frugal at the same time. And, and this, again, boils down to education. And just to to clarify this, uh, particularly for our listeners, when we talk about an international regulatory control, we're not talking about some sort of global federalism here, are we? We're simply talking about the instruments that are used to make sure that we are all on a on a level playing field. Correct. We we have these international standards when it comes to war, when it comes to the trade of human lives. Um, when it comes to child labor. Um, now, I'm not naive. I'm not innocent. I, I, I know that there's abuses of those international agreements. The Montreal Protocol is an example of what I have in mind, and that was a successful international agreement regarding ozone depletion when we were popping holes in the atmosphere, um, in the ozone layer, due to CFC 114. There are successful cases of international agreement that can be built. I think that World Inc. is my book that I wrote to try and help people see through the limits of nationalism and understand that they are, in fact, a global citizen. I first felt that when I used to visit Brussels in the 80s and 90s. I met many global citizens back then. So there are steps back. There is frustration, but overall... I, I do think that if you go to worldinkbook.com, you'll see many examples. So I am not of the type of thinking that believes you should penalize regions. I think what we need to do is incentivize education and growth so that people understand the pleasure of frugality, you know, the, the pleasure of accepting one rose instead of a dozen roses on your birthday. There's a common... I don't have all the answers, David, but I I do understand that the people that take delight in life do not necessarily seek maximum things. They they don't necessarily think um, 
that they need more than their neighbors. Um, some of the people that I have found the most delightful are, in fact, at home with the Sisters of Frugality. So one wonders why economic theory evolved in disregard of that reality, that that the Mother Teresas of the world or the E.F. Schumachers of the world or the humble creative types throughout human history, they didn't need excess consumption. There may be something in human nature that needs a little excess, right, but not superabundant excess. And the role of the state is to prevent the idle consumption of excess, I think. So um, we're talking theory here, but I'm also trying to explain the principles of how consumptive behavior is changed through human culture. In the end, there are two things fighting for the human heart. One is a redemptive force, which understands I'm not the only one in life, and the other is a consumptive force. And when I write my books, I try and think of the redemptive imagination in relationship to the consumptive imagination. Well, let me just touch on this very briefly because I want to move ahead with with some other items. In order for that to take place, and it is a remarkably strong premise, that we have to have this level playing field, we have to have better understanding uh, in order to level out the economies of the world, Um, that takes a lot of giving up. Does does it not? It, it takes it, a, it takes a, us as a culture, as a people, as families, uh, as um, uh, a Western society, uh, to give up a lot, and that is part of the frugality argument. I'm sure that we're going to have to face that in order that there can be better cooperation, better understanding, uh, and and more uh, reunited effort in establishing that international regulatory control. Exactly. So, for example, I'm, I'm writing a book after The Surprising Solution for the same publisher, Sourcebooks, which um, I believe will be called something like Rethinking Money and Politics in a Smaller World. And what I, what I believe um, is that in the concept of competitive frugality, there is the notion of giving up something that you have a right to. Now, isn't that what courage is, or isn't that what a hero is? Um, I I think that there's a lot of literature about how a hero is self-sacrificing. I I believe there's some space between self-sacrifice and self-aggrandizement. Well, where do, the answer resides. And, and does that not, sorry to interrupt there, no, no. Bruce, does that not lead on to, the, to the, the sound premise that I believe that we are going to have to move towards a world uh, in taking that position of being uh, more voluntary with our time, having more voluntary programs, giving up a lot more of our time to help others? I'm with you. In fact, you know, part of my concept of social response capitalism is that we compete not only for price and quality and goods, but also to answer the needs of society. And clearly, the bright lights of those that vol- volunteer are examples of that. I'd like to just um, hit very briefly um, on the, the rate of change. Uh, the regulatory control that we clearly need here very, very urgently, and, and not 
to make a, a, a big affair of this, but I'd like to cite it. Uh, in the case of Toyota, we've seen this massive recall. Um, yes. we, we, uh, in, in my own opinion, uh, we really are um, bashing uh, Toyota far too excessively. Um, clearly, they, they need to be profitable. Uh, clearly, they have responsibility to their stakeholders. And they, they have uh, expedited this process too quickly, therefore really found themselves in a bad situation with these recalls uh, on the Prius. Um, but it's, this should surely be looked upon as a, as a good example and learning lesson rather than us saying, well, that's a mess. That is what, uh, is caused by greed and, and, uh, excessive need for profitability. And if that's, that's the case, how can we use this regulatory, uh, mechanism now to not just ensure that th- that sort of case does not occur again, but to make sure that they, they are supported in making sure that that doesn't happen again. Right. So this is what I'd like to go on record regarding Toyota, because those who read my last two books know that I worked on the hybrid powertrain for them in 99 to 2002, and I have not worked for them you know, in the last eight years. I think they are an example of lean manufacture. I think they're an example of a competitive and productive, innovative firm. But I think what went wrong is they made some serious manufacturing errors, and they tried to hide some of those. So I think what they're suffering, this $2.1 billion loss in the value of their reputation, it's, it's measured in market cap. And it's happened for several reasons, and and I like to reflect on those, because these are the kinds of things I benchmark within the corporate affiliates program. And I remember we did one right after BP's Texas City explosion killed uh, a serious amount of subcontractors. Essentially, there's a factor in society that I describe in the swiftness of the world, which is a David and Goliath effect. If, If a corporation becomes too big, like a Walmart, or a Toyota, or uh, BP. You know, Toyota was worth more than two hundred billion. BP three hundred billion, and Walmart six hundred billion. They are perceived as different. They're perceived as a David, and there's a fair number of Goliaths that keep them in check. And I think society needs that. So, if you look at the Wall Street Journal in any day, Walmart is the only company that has five stories about it. Um, you know, if you look at how BP's uh, was severely hit after uh, three lies that they were engaged in, one was the uh, operation and maintenance budgets in their pipelines in, in Alaska. The other was how they didn't do operations and maintenance in Texas City, and that's called, in my field, asset integrity. And then they also had another lie regarding their leadership, um, which I'd rather not talk about in details. But in a long and short of it, BP uh, was severely and swiftly, even though it's $300 billion firm, hurt by those lies. I believe in a society in which that's possible. That that might be the clearest example of uh, those books that uh, try and call me a corporate apologist haven't really read my work. Um, it, 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 there, There is, in the case of Toyota, this is another example of the S-Frontier. All of their quality safety checks 
that were cross-checking principles. It has to come out in the record. It has to come out in congressional testimony about the thoroughness with which they looked. Now, this is a legitimate role, David, of government. Government should check not just the Davids, but even the smaller entities. So Toyota has done some harm to itself. It's serious harm to its reputation. But it really underlines what I meant in the book by the swift and severe world. Let me, let me uh, make this statement and, and uh, gain your feedback. Uh, I noticed with, uh, noted with great interest in your latest book that you cite uh, the 300 major industrial uh, corporations in the world. And uh, to a great extent, they probably hold uh, more value uh, and more uh, revenue uh, um, uh, evidence than, than the GDP of many countries. In that book, you state that there would be uh, attrition, there would be casualties in these corporations. Now, I read that in you saying that they, there would be many casualties because the products that they're selling um, will simply not be in demand uh, because of people's lifestyles, because of uh, lack of income, etc. Would I be correct in saying that actually what you are saying is that there will be attrition because of this very problem that those seeking um, uh, sustainability as part of their, as a large part of their mission as industrial uh, corporations, um, are, are going to fail in, in that mission uh, because they will become the guinea pigs in some ways into finding this balance between sustainability and profitability. I, I think in writing it, I meant both. Uh, I meant that <clears throat> some will fail because they'll make obsolete out of articles and products that will not be in demand, and then others will have failed due to what we call errors in corporate governance. In other words, they, they didn't review their systems with the proper humility. You know, it's, it, the, the way to think of it, David, and my firm does a lot of work in governance for boards and multinationals, the, you know, the best companies have an inkling that things are not perfect. I remember an old Polish story that I grew up hearing my grandmother talk about, about a church, a stone church in Poland, where the people of the community knew that it was managed by a proper leader because he would send people up on the roof to look for holes. And some of the people of the congregation would say, it's not raining, why would you look for holes? Or they would say, there's no evidence of the rain coming through the church. Why should you even start the effort of the audit to look if there's holes between the caulking of the stones? Well, good governance is the ability to create management systems to look for it before it starts to rain. And it's possible that the great company Toyota did fail in the last year or two to look for those holes between the rocks. It doesn't in, mean in, the whole church comes down, David. So, in, in other words, uh, Bruce, what you're saying is that the the um, premise of prevention in healthcare to reduce costs also has to be applied very strongly to these industrial factors, to to, to these problems that we face here. In, in fact, yes, and that's what's so beautiful about those well-dressed sisters of restraint and frugality. In the last 10 minutes, uh, Bruce, can we sum up here um, 
What we've looked at so far, according to my notes, is the importance of international regulatory mechanisms. Mm -hmm. We've looked on a social scale on people having to be uh, more voluntary in their thinking, uh, in their everyday lives. We've also have to place, to a certain extent, um, the responsibility upon consumers to be informed. And equally, we have to place the responsibility of industrial leaders to be, conf uh, to, to be informed. Mm -hmm. Now, would you agree that those are the main uh, concepts here that we have to look at immediately and take all of those and put them into one element, into one way forward uh, that, that is headed up by government, headed up by the private sector, and most importantly, headed up by people. I think that's a very elegant and, and accurate summary of why I wrote The Surprising Solution. The arguments of international standards, more voluntary personal action, more restraint in personal action, uh, the idea of resisting the easy complaint that it's all about greed, the whole notion that consumers must be informed, you know, that, that beware the ignorant buy. And I, the only difference I'd say about the industrial leaders, I, I'd like to, in my experience, the people who are running the corporate mansions are incredibly informed. They know the latest about climate change. They know the latest about the science of toxic contamination. They know the latest of the risks of public health and manufacturing sites. They are informed. What's missing is transparency, and, and, you, and, you, and we cannot have them accountable if one cannot see through that black, shiny window in the corporate mansion, just like the black, shiny windows of the limousine. So Sarbanes-Oxley 404 and other disclosure laws, like Sour Title III, um, are laws that have been designed by great thinkers in society to make that information more transparent. What did they know? What did Nike know when it was using child labor in those shops? Well, obviously, the Caskey lawsuit was not able to prove that they knew enough because they couldn't see inside the mansion of Nike. So I think um, the only twist of change to what you su summarized so brilliantly was this notion that the industrial leaders are informed. They might have better information than the ordinary citizen or the buyer. However, the ordinary citizen does have a right to look at that, David, and under procurement and buyer rules, like the Sherman Antitrust Rule, say we need accountability. We need to see that information in order for us to know if we should buy again from you. I think that I'd like to sum that up um, before you, you make some final statements here, Bruce, by saying that the reason that I started this conversation with the words industry is people and, and, and people are industry um, has a great strength to it. Um, mm -hmm. are, are we not uh, becoming so uh, well perfected in pointing fingers at, at everybody else? There's no doubt about it that leaders in industry are insular. Um, there's no doubt about it that transparency is still a concern. But, you know, d does it? would you not agree with me that we should be applying that to, to us as people at the same time? We're, we're, all, the, we're all the same group. Um, we should really look at all of these 
Uh, yeah, you know, it, it, let's look <laughs> in a sportive way at history. Society has decided to dethrone kings, you know, so the story plots of Shakespeare have changed because there's very, king, very few kings in the world. Now, in my way of thinking in this 21st century, the informed consumer is the last standing king in that if they look out at the vast universe of consumer delight, they have to choose amongst the billion options the three to five things they really need. Just like a king in the past had the right to choose among many things. I think we electronics is a good example of that. Pharmaceutical industries is a good example of it. I don't believe the average 60-year-old needs as much medication as they take. And you have to wonder who chooses for them, right? So the informed consumer is the last standing king in my books. And you may wish, you know, listeners of this show, to check out my chapter on HP and the vast universe of consumer goods. Because HP is, in my mind, the company that has thought the most about you. What kind of digital camera do you need? What kind of electronics do you need? And it has thought very seriously about the next billion buyers who will be less wealthy. In the last uh, 30 seconds of the program, Bruce, uh, would you just like to um, talk to very briefly to the courage that we all need, whether we're in government, private sector, or individuals out there on the street? Well, you know, above my computer, I have a little plastic um, motto or mantra that was uh, from the, it's called the Organic Commandment, and it's from an architect. Uh, who lived to be 92 in Arizona. And he talks about love is the virtue of the heart. He talks about sincerity is the virtue of mind and that the courage is the virtue of spirit. I, I believe you need more than courage because courage will allow you to take action that might be thoughtless, as many uh, fallen soldiers know. I, I think our century needs uh, a love for other people in a smaller world as much as it needs sincerity in in your mind and so part for me part of the act of writing is to discover those things beyond courage because we do need courage but, but we need other elements as well bruce pierseki of the ahc group uh, thank you so very much for joining me again on this uh long-term series of programs. I do wish you well with uh, succeeding in our carbon and capital-constrained world in Washington, D.C., and I'm going to be looking forward to joining you at that time. Thank you for your time, David. It's always a delight to speak with you. I feel like I'm educated and as well as having a chance to inform and communicate. Thanks for your time. I'm uh, very, very appreciative of that comment. Thank you, Bruce. And to our listeners, uh, thank you also for joining us today. Hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. Wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.